the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Merry Christmas to you. It is the 17th of December, a Tuesday. And delighted to have you along for another edition of Lifeline. We're here in the stand each Monday through Friday, of course, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Pretty full agenda tonight. Um, We've got mixed bags, some good news, some not-so-encouraging news, uh, a little bit of Grinch that stole Christmas sort of stuff, and uh, a major victory in the case of First Amendment rights for a pastor in a case that we've been following out of Spokane, Washington. So uh, the usual list of suspects will join us. Uh, Brad Dacus, of course, president of the Pacific Justice Institute, will stop by for an update. Brian Johnston with the National Right to Life Committee on uh, the latest goings-on between the L.A. School Board District and Planned Parenthood. Talk about a marriage made in Hades. Wow. We'll give you details on that. But as we begin tonight, I have to tell you that I I began the day today, as I normally do, in front of a computer looking at, well, like most folks do, email and checking out news stories and seeing what transpired since I went to bed on uh, Monday night. And one of the things that I noticed was almost being inundated by the number of emails coming from various journalistic organizations trying to rally other um, journalists uh, within broadcast, print media, and so forth here in California, uh, basically sounding the alarm with the passage of Assembly Bill 5, which takes effect come January 1st of 2020, and what appears to be on the surface an effort by the legislature to try and help deal with uh, those folks that engage in so-called gig economies for living. Maybe you uh, drive for uh, you know Uber or Lyft or one of those. Make sure you're not being violated in terms of uh, you know your 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 uh, your right to have full privileges, insurance, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, benefits, things that we all um, certainly need. The problem, of course, is that this bill is so widespread and and seemingly on the surface. Once again, California state legislature micromanaging every aspect of business here in our fair state, raising no questions as to why more and more businesses are fleeing California. And and this, I have to wonder if it maybe just goes a field too far. While I don't know that I necessarily agree with the notion of some of my colleagues that this is a direct attack and assault on um, a journalist of freedom, I do have to wonder whether or not this aspect of the bill is really, you know, killing the ant with a major sledgehammer. Let's get some insight. Um, an expert in the arena of public policy, particularly here for California. He is dean and senior fellow at Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Always delighted to have join us Pete Peterson. Pete, hello and Merry Christmas to you. 
Merry Christmas to you, Craig. Great to be with you. Now, you know, initially on the surface, you heard this uh, bill being debated uh, by the legislature earlier this year, and the idea want to make sure that, you know, part-time individuals are not being um, qualified or classified that way as a means of a company denying them health benefits, sick leave, things of this sort. And so this was sort of seen as the bill that was going to fix this problem for employees of outfits like Uber and Lyft, DoorDash, and others. Uh, it seems to potentially have some unintended consequences here, but educate us first. What's the spirit behind this bill, and why am I hearing from all these freelance journalists saying that this is really going to stifle their ability to earn a living in California? Well, Craig, you put your finger on it. You know, we we teach uh, free market economic policy here at the graduate school, and one of the lessons that all of our first-year students get is the law of unintended consequences when it comes to government regulation. And this certainly seems to be an example here in AB5 of uh, not only unintended consequences, but really some bad legislative writing uh, that was vague enough to be construed in a number of different ways, uh, but in most cases are uh, really have significant ramifications for uh, small businesses and individual contractors. It is, as you say, was really framed as a way of supporting Uber and Lyft drivers uh, with a minimum of uh, 20 hours a week. If they were driving uh, around 20 bucks an hour, they were earning, then they would be made eligible for sick leave and and paid family leave, uh, along with other benefits through AB5. But what we're beginning to see is how far-ranging both the interpretation of AB5 is and also some of the intricacies there. So on the the piece there about the journalists, uh, there's specific letter, there's a phrasing in, in AB5 that said if independent journalists or contractors are writing more than 35 pieces a year, that that 36 piece, uh, makes them then eligible under AB5 to claim, uh, essentially full-time, uh, benefits. And, you know, you, you're, you're left to wonder how, how could somebody in Sacramento come up with a law that is meant to go and support in some ways Uber and Lyft drivers, but but swallows up in its net uh, independent journalists or, or essayists that are writing, you know, 40 to 50 pieces a year. But But that's what we have now in Sacramento, is we have a legislature that has little to no business experience uh, attempting to legislate and, and write legislation that covers a whole variety of the diverse businesses that are present here in the state. You know, what strikes me as as being very odd about this, and, and maybe this is a whole different time that we live in, but when I was a kid growing up back at the turn of the last couple of centuries now, jobs like McDonald's, you know, and they, they argue today, well, McDonald's doesn't pay a livable wage, but... I'm sorry, is it really supposed to? Weren't there supposed to be entry-level jobs where you got some skills, you learned how to uh, respond or, or uh, you know, comply with the directions of a manager, take orders, uh, engage with customers and customer service, be responsible, show up to work on time, all that good stuff. And then eventually you took the basic skills that you honed there and then went on to a real job, not to diminish those that work at McDonald's, yeah. but it just seems to me that there are certain types of jobs that are not intended to make, to make you earn enough money to buy a house in California, get wages, and raise a family of four. 
Well, you're exactly right, Craig. And and again, the 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 attempt to legislate over such a wide diversity of businesses. Obviously, we're hearing about these stories because it is in fa- it is affecting journalists and essay writers. So we're going to. You know, obviously, they're the ones that can write about it. But what about all those, you know, there, I saw another piece about AB5 that went into the impact on franchises. Um, you know, both the franchisees, but also those who are working for the franchises. You know, in many cases, even these very small businesses isn't the sole source of income for the people that own them. And for, you know, we have that phrase, side hustle. Uh, used today to describe these jobs for Uber and Lyft. This isn't the only source of income, but what this legislation does is it treats all these part-time jobs as full-time jobs, and in so doing, uh, reduces the number of these jobs available, as we see here with the move by Vox Media to essentially lay off 300 independent journalists that they had uh, subcontracted with to write pieces for their media properties. It's really sad because it demonstrates in the legislature a fundamental lack of understanding as to how business operates, not just in California, but anywhere for that matter. Yeah. And also, I think, denies employees the right to say, hey, I'm not looking for a full-time gig here. I have a full-time gig. I'm looking for a little extra money because, you know, I want to buy the boat that I've always dreamed of, or I want to right. take my wife on a special anniversary uh, vacation to Europe, and so this is how I'm making some extra money, or, you know, wh- whatever it might be. You're not looking to get get, you know, full-time employment that comes with benefits. You have one of those gigs. So sadly, this kind of unintended consequences is going to wind up putting people out of work. That's exactly right, Craig. And and again, what it misses, and, uh, you know, I think we've just come to expect this from the democratically dominated legislature in Sacramento, is just a lack of business sense. I mean, many of these jobs are portable. All of these journalistic jobs where you have independent contractors that are writing news stories, they can be done from anywhere in the world. And so, you know, essentially what we're doing is we're forcing these independent contractor jobs out of the state as well. And so a state that's known for its technological advances and being very forward thinking on on technology and workforce and so on is that it really treats them in a system that thinks that we are back in the 1960s or 1970s, that these part-time jobs are really intended to be full-time jobs. And as we've just discussed here, they're not intended to be that. This is also demonstrative of the notion that we need more people in public service that actually have some public policy background and understanding so that they can reason through before a piece of legislation is crafted or voted upon to understand the big picture, the rules of unintended consequences, and and how that sometimes, even with the best of intentions, if you really can't think through because you're incapable or unqualified to see all sides of the equation, that sometimes in the effort to do good or to correct a problem, you correct one and create three more. Toward that end, quickly, Pete, if you would, there are some folks listening right now that will have have students that will be um, contemplating come 2020 where they're heading off for their um, scholastic career to um, the next level of education and higher education. A, a word, if you would, about the, the public policy um, department there at the school of uh, Pepperdine University. 
Well, thanks, Greg. Yeah, we offer a, a two-year, essentially a 20-month master's in public policy, and our students uh, go on to a variety of careers uh, from Sacramento to Capitol Hill, uh, working in politics and policy. Some run for office, others are advisors to those uh, in office. Some work in the many uh, and vibrant think tank world, both in D.C. and around the country. Um, the application period is open for uh, next fall, and uh, so we've just begun our recruiting process for graduate students uh, who will start in late August and early September. And so publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu is the website uh, where prospective students can learn about the scholarship opportunities and the great career opportunities made available by our master's degree. And again, information available on the web at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. And our thanks to Pete Peterson, Dean and Senior Fellow at Pepperdine School of Public Policy for that quick glimpse into the unintended consequences of Assembly Bill 5, which goes into effect come January of 2020, and um, you'll no doubt be reading and hearing more about this in the coming weeks and months. 519, an update on traffic. Let's get the latest from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back. 23 after the hour. You've heard the old adage. You've seen it on many ads. Poor credit, no credit, no problem. Or maybe big problem. There is now a new foot of, uh, effort afoot that would place caps on certain types of loans. And unfortunately, we were talking earlier with Pete Peterson from Pepperdine University about the rule of unintended consequences. Here may be one where people that are in the worst-case credit scenario, poor, poor credit, no credit at all, but they need a loan, that they, in fact, may be negatively impacted by this proposal. Let's get more information. Colin Hanna joins us, president of Let Freedom Ring, a nonprofit public policy organization dedicated to promoting constitutional government, free enterprise, remember that, don't you, and traditional values. Colin, great to have you with us. Tell us a bit what is this proposal all about, relationship to so-called payday loans and interest rate caps? Sure, Craig. It's great to be with you and KPAX. Um, so, a payday loan is a term that is sometimes used to cover a very short-term loan, uh, somewhere around two weeks, many people being paid on a bi-weekly basis. And a perfect example is something like a, a single mom who's got a couple of kids who is trying uh, to make ends meet, but each month it's very, very tight. And then along comes a car problem, and that's not unknown for folks that are uh, at the lower end of our economic spectrum. You know, they might very well have a car that, that isn't terribly reliable, and it breaks down. It may cost $1,000 to get it done, and there may be a $1,000 rent payment due uh, within a couple of days. Well, the single mom is going to have to prioritize the car over the rent because if she doesn't get the car back on the road, she loses her job and she can't pay the rent. So she takes the rent money and uses it to fix the car. Then the rent comes due, and if she's not current with the rent, then she and her two kids are out on the street. 
So a payday lender makes it possible uh, for her to do a short-term loan during which time she might, for instance, uh, line up some things to sell on eBay or something like that to, to claw her way back uh, into a, into a break-even situation. Now, let me give you a perfect example of what an interest rate might be, because there's this new proposal to cap interest rates at 36%. Now, on the surface of it, Craig, that sounds great. You know, you can get a mortgage these days for four and a half, five, six percent. You can get a car loan anywhere from zero percent to eight or nine percent. So why, why should anyone pay an interest rate higher than 36%. Well, let's look back at this unfortunate single mom. Her situation is that she needs it right now in order to make the rent payment. So let's say a short-term lender offers her the $1,000 she needs and says, in two weeks, pay me back 1050 That's a 5% fee for the $1,000. But since it's for half a month, That amounts to 10% a month, which technically is 120% a year. Now, that sounds very, very high, but ask that single mom if she wouldn't rather make the rent payment and owe $50 in fees for the cost of getting access to that $1,000 versus going in arrears and possibly being kicked out. That's the kind of case that would be disadvantaged. There's a, there's a lifeline, there's a safety net that some of these short-term lenders provide folks with low credit or no credit. And in the law of unintended consequences that you just cited from the uh, professor at Pepperdine, uh, these people would be denied the very credit that they need. Yes, it's a high rate, but it's a high rate because there is a risk of the lender not getting repaid. So I think that the better answer, Craig, is to make credit available. Don't block their access to credit. Make credit available. So the law of unintended consequences that is designed to protect uh, the single mom from predatory lenders actually could wind up turning her life completely upside down and putting her into full financial chaos. And, and of course, the 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 challenge here is, you know, people will say, well, you know, we've heard about these so-called payday loans, and you can get money from the mob for less and things of this sort. And, and, you know, certainly, uh, you know, you look at some of the rates, but you also realize that uh, from the lender's standpoint, you're talking about people that have no credit, poor credit, they're a high risk, they have no alternatives. And in some cases, this is the only option they have. At least they wind up with, you know, uh, a car that can't get them to work and they lose a job as a result or, you know, uh, short on the rent. And all of a sudden they've got they're facing an eviction notice. Craig, you understand it perfectly. And the whole point that you raised about uh, getting it from the mob, I can assure you that the mob will step in if this rate cap is put in place and provide much worse deals to folks who are in a short-term cash bind than would be the case with the existing payday lenders without this cap. So it's a classic example of some political solution 
the idea that the government should intervene into the free market theoretically in protection of of the poor and indigent among us in fact just the opposite happens they are the ones getting shafted and and it's interesting because i looked at the the proposed rate cap here and uh, i recently went with a friend to go shop a car wanted some advice how to go about negotiating so i'll go with you and uh, mm-hmm. the point at which the discussion turned to um credit uh, and, and here's a reputable, big-name automobile dealership with a name that we all would know immediately, and uh, they do. They mm-hmm. have their own financing division, and uh, because this gentleman has uh, not spoiled credit, but young credit, it, it short, uh, you know, short history, sure. uh, they sure. offered him a an automobile loan at twenty eight percent. So. If if a major automobile manufacturer that provides their own that has their own credit division sees nothing wrong with twenty eight percent, then what 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 are they doing over here making noise about uh, uh, the possibility of of literally closing people out from the only credit that they may ever have access to, uh, short of an opportunity like this? You make the argument very soundly. That's exactly the case, and it certainly at first glance looks like some form of consumer protection. But in effect, what it really does is put people on the road to financial ruin. And it's just the opposite of their intention. That's why the government should get out of the business of intervening within the free market. Because I'll tell you, as soon as they start putting those caps on, those mob lenders that he referred to a few minutes ago are going to be licking their chops because they'll be going after uh, these poor folks who are now being denied. They, they might wind up being the only uh, resource available, oddly enough. Colin Hanna, president of Let Freedom Ring. We appreciate, uh, Colin, your your time and the insights, by the way, um, on uh, this topic. He writes about very articulately at townhall.com. A look at arbitrary interest rate caps hurt most vulnerable consumers. Our thanks to Colin Hanna for being with us on Lifeline. All right, 5.32. Let's get you another update on traffic here. And let's swing over to the KFAX Traffic Center to make that happen. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It is a, uh, well, quite frankly, uh, the, the Christmas gift from the Grinch that keeps on giving. The alliance between uh, Planned Parenthood and the state of California continues to grow. And um, now most recently, the city of Los Angeles, the county of Los Angeles, opening 50, 50 clinics at area high schools. This is going to cost taxpayers in Los Angeles County a cool $10 million dollars all of it under the guise of providing educational services, birth control options, testing and treatment for sexually transmitted infections, and pregnancy counseling, most ironically by an organization that benefits the most from all of this. Let's get the inside story 
And uh, Brian Johnson, the concern here, of course, is that um, once this gets firmly planted in Los Angeles County, uh, they're going to continue to roll out this model all across the state, and then once successful in California, no doubt more of the nation. Brian, by the way, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. Uh, Brian, I, d- to say that I was dumbfounded when I heard this story last week uh, is probably an understatement. Well, Craig, it's actually, as you know, their desire and agenda for a long time. Indeed. By being in the schools, they completely circumvent involvement of parents in any way. And that has been the desire of Planned Parenthood, to raise your children. They're the village that wants to raise your children. They're the ones that want to take away accountability. Again, we have been given our children as a responsibility, and under the law, there needs to be someone acting in loco parentis. If that's a minor child, someone has to be looking after the best interest of that child. So if your child's on a school trip, there is an adult there that's held accountable. If, if your child is kidnapped on that school trip, that teacher, that principal, that individual is personally responsible. Planned Parenthood does not function that way. They do not take responsibility. It actually dissolves the nature of the relationship between the parent and the school. This is very, very serious because they want to teach your children to do what they feel, and they also want to supplant the notion that there's good and bad feeling. In other words, that there's right and wrong, and you know some of the stories that have been told. They basically are teaching very young children inappropriate sexual things, and making light of the responsibility we have as human beings, that we're not mere animals. They view human beings as mere animals, and they're going to be inclined a certain way. Let's promote that. And, of course, that ends up with pregnancies, and that ends up with pregnancies that must be terminated. So this is very, very dangerous now because they're in the schools. Uh, Craig, we've talked about this before. There's one advantage now at this point in time. And that is this, is that you can control your school district. And the reason they've won in Los Angeles is that people have not been electing proper school board members. And we tend to view elections as just about the president. Obviously, the president and Congress is getting a lot of attention right now. But the one election where you can have the most dramatic result is actually on the school boards, because your vote goes so much further in a school district and this coming february and i say the month of february because of our new election pattern is it's an early primary and in this early primary is when we elect school boards so even though the date is march 3rd for our coming election because of the change in voter habit that's merely the day that the votes are tallied because voting is going to be uh, by absentee. And so I'm saying all that to say this. If you have an opportunity to protect the children of your community by electing good school board members, that if you're involved in the civic process, you can stop Planned Parenthood locally. You can do so much more locally if you will use your vote with knowledge. Vote for someone who is pro-life and will support the the right of the parent to know what's going on with their children. That's the very premise of why our schools exist. They act in loco parentis, a Latin term meaning on behalf of the parent. 
make sure that you vote properly. If you want to help, we're asking people. We can't do it in your community, but you can. And California Pro-Life Council has questionnaires that you can send out to your local school board candidates, and you can find out if they should be supported or not. That's the only way to stop this. As you said, Craig, they want to go from Los Angeles using They've used Los Angeles taxpayer money. Now it's $10 million from those taxpayers, and they've added $6 million from Planned Parenthood. But that's actually your taxpayer money, too. Well, and that's the and, irony, and, and I'm, I'm glad that you've emphasized the matter of people getting involved at the local level, because oftentimes we sort of tend to generally think about, well, the Supreme Court needs to make a reversal on Roe versus Wade, and that'll fix everything. But wait a minute, though. This battle is enjoined at so many levels, so many tiers, and oftentimes the battles that we can win the most readily are the local battles because we have local influence, local say, local control. And Los Angeles is just sort of a, uh, a petri dish, as it were, for what Planned Parenthood wants to do. And there was one quote, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a doozy, Brian, that I want to mention for listeners. Uh, Barbara Farrar, director of the L.A. County Department of Public Health, she herself, by the way, a former high school principal, says that the program has grown out of, quote, conversations about strategies for combating the area's alarming rise in sexually transmitted diseases such as gonorrhea and chlamydia among young people ages 15 to 24, close quote. Now, the irony, of course, is that Planned Parenthood has the greatest stake in promoting behavior because they promote the behavior, then they turn around and provide solutions that eventually try to, quote, unquote, stop its effects, in this case, pregnancy. And I, I kind of liken that to the notion of, uh, I don't know, uh, Planned Parenthood clinics, the equivalent of AA having a corner liquor store, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's you really know, unbelievable. The sure, the mafia offering to protect your business. You right, know, exactly, your exactly. We don't want your windows broken now, do we? So we're going to move in, and we'll take care of things. And that's what they've moved into the schools. When you really think about the meaning of that, it should send chills up your spine. They are taking over the schools and the moral teaching of your children, and they're not being held accountable. And yet that's what they're doing. They're taking the place within the school of moral teachers. And this is very serious. You can't stop it. They had this agenda for the state. This coming election, if you will ask, uh, contact California Pro-Life, go to CaliforniaProLife.org and uh, send a, a question, excuse me, send an email that say that you want to know about local school boards, you want to find out, and we'll send you the tools to use. You have to use those tools, though, if you want to stop them in your school district, and you can't. As, as you know, Craig, we've talked about it for many years, uh, parental consent for abortion. It's legal in California to secretly take a young woman out of school, get an abortion for her, and bring her back. But few people know this. While it's legal, it can be prevented in a school district because the school district board can say, well, that's legal, but we're not going to allow it in our district. So the power of the local school board and local school district is immense if you have the right people there. So it is up to us as individuals to care about this civic process. As they say, all politics is local. If you care about that, you can have a tremendous impact. One, 
one group, not just a church, but just one small group, because so many people don't follow local politics, you can help elect a good school board member. It's not hard to organize and make sure that people, the right people run, and you can communicate with your friends in the community and get them elected, because it's the smallest elective office that can be had. So it's a place to make an impact. It's a place to learn the civic process. We're in... I can't tell you how often I think that Franklin Graham has done a great example. We are adjured to be involved in this battle now. Be involved in your civic arena right where you are, and you can make a difference. But as this situation shows us, failure to be involved is surrendering everything. And when you surrender the schools to these people, you're really surrendering everything. So it's a fight that's on us. And again, more information available. Go to CaliforniaProLife.org. That's CaliforniaProLife.org. Our thanks to Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee, for that update. Sad state of affairs in Los Angeles these days. 547. Traffic now from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, well, after all that depressing news out of Los Angeles, let's uh, brighten things for the holiday, shall we? A little bit of an early Christmas gift, particularly for Pastor Yankton of Spokane, Washington. We've been following this story for some time now. Um, it happened, if memory serves me right along, about uh, mid-year near Father's Day when the local public library held an event called Drag Queen Story Hour. And I don't know that you need to know much more than just that title. Needless to say, there has been an ongoing legal battle pertaining to what have been argued by some to be the outright illegal arrest and violation of constitutional rights of this pastor, who, let me add, was not there to protest, but rather wanted to observe his tax dollars at work. Let's get the details on the story and the good news tonight. Constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus, joins us. Counselor, Merry Christmas to you, and um, certainly a merrier Christmas for uh, Pastor Yankton. Yes, it really is, and uh, I tell you, we're really glad to uh, uh, you know to, to see what's happened. Uh, our attorney uh, stepped in to defend this pastor who is being criminally prosecuted simply because he wanted to attend a public event at a public library, uh, the Drag Queen Story Hour, uh, just like everyone else. He wasn't demonstrating, no sign, no bugle, no nothing. He just wanted to be there and observe and to pray to himself, pray silently to himself, to those kids. Uh, but he was not allowed to simply because they asked him, they said, are you supportive of this group and what, they, what they're about, the Drag Queen? He said, no, I'm not, but I want to observe. They said, well, you're not allowed to be in there then. You have to go to the other side of the street. So they arrested him, had three hours in a squad car. Then they booked him like a criminal. Then they brought criminal charges. The prosecutor brought criminal charges against him in cahoots with the law enforcement. And they were going to put him behind bars. And this is headed straight for criminal trial in the town of Spokane, Washington. Well... Craig, as you know, we at Pacific Justice stepped in, we represented him without charge, uh, filed a motion to dismiss, arguing this is a clear violation of the constitutional rights of citizens 
not to be excluded from public places simply because they're Christian or because they're, you know, they're, they have beliefs. And the judge saw, thought what it, for what it was and dismissed it in front of the DA, dismissed it. Um, and so that is great news. He's not being uh, prosecuted. But the DA, Craig, get this, the DA has decided that uh, they're going to double down and they're filing for a motion of reconsideration. Huh. Even though, I mean, what? even though the, yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute, what happened that, to my Christmas good news story? Hang on here. Oh. Well, they're filing a motion for reconsideration, but the judge didn't just dismiss it, dismiss it flippantly. She spent her time to write a very thorough, detailed opinion letter citing case law and history and everything. So the fact that he still has the audacity to file a motion for reconsideration, which will not be granted. I mean, it, was, it just shows the indignancy of... Uh, that district attorney's office and the, the law enforcement there in Spokane towards people of faith and wanting to treat them like second-class citizens. Yeah, I was going to say, don't they have real law. criminals that they need to be prosecuting up in Spokane, Washington, instead of, uh, you know, basically engaging in violating the constitutional rights of pastors and, and taxpayers? Yeah, they, they certainly do have plenty of, of real criminals. And the fact that they're wanting to spend so much money and so much time simply to get this pastor, who, by the way, this was his first uh, drag queen hour event to be in. It's not like he's, he goes there and makes a commotion. This is the first time he's a pretty mild pastor. He just heard about it. His heart went out to these kids. And um, and get this. This really is the, is the topper here to show where they're coming from. The, uh, the, the attorney uh, for the district attorney's office who's prosecuting this, um, on his Facebook um, he he referred to our client and others as religious loonies. Wow! As religious loonies on the Facebook, and that shows you exactly where he's at. He wants to. He has, he has a vendetta apparently. Uh, the office, the law enforcement, uh, the law enforcement. We caught law enforcement changing their story, lying. You know, outright lying. We caught it. We paid it. We brought that before the judge. Um, because they wanted to change the facts so that they can make sure they could get this pastor and Christians like him not to uh, be able to be treated fairly and equally like other people. And um, so this has been really nasty. We often think of Spokane as the reasonable part of the state of Washington, uh, but it's uh, it's quickly losing that reputation, Craig. Well, the, the, the one nice thing you can say is apparently not not very reasonable and apparently not very well educated um, in the in the DA's office because to make a remark remark of that nature in a public fashion. And, you know, if we've learned anything in recent years, um, stay away from Facebook and Twitter if you really don't know what you're talking about before you get yourself in serious trouble. And apparently uh, the DA has not learned that. To make that kind of remark, I mean, I'm I'm an amateur at this, but it would seem to me that that's largely going to really make the case before another judge on reconsideration to demonstrate emphatically this is simply an agenda. It has nothing to do with uh, protecting the law making sure that people don't go crazy in public libraries, none of that. This is all about a a very clear anti-faith or anti-religious bias being demonstrated by the local DA's office. Unbelievable. Yeah, and there there are many who are very extreme with regards to these agendas, and when you see it permeate into law enforcement and you see it permeate into the district attorney's office and prosecutors, that's very concerning. 
very concerning. And we at Pacific Justice Institute, uh, you know, 30% of our budget now is criminal defense. Criminal defense, defending ministers, pastors, evangelists for being prosecuted uh, for sharing their faith or living their faith or believing their faith. And uh, so far, we're 11 out of 13. We've had straight wins. Uh, actually, say 11, uh, 12 out of 14. We've had straight wins, counting this one. And now we've uh, got two on appeal. But uh, that's what we're dealing with in America and uh, across the country. And and uh, by God's grace, we're intending to continue to do this anywhere and defend anyone we need to uh, who are being attacked like this anywhere in the United States. I, I, you're, you're the one guy that I wish would, would, would just be so, so successful at what you do that you'd work your way out of a job. I mean, you know, and, yeah. and we, we'd be on the radio saying, gee, poor Brad Dacus's family, they have nothing to eat because he's out of a job because he's fixed all these problems. I, I hope, in a, in a gentle way, I hope that day comes. And if so, put me down for a large contribution. But in the meanwhile, <laughs> we're certainly appreciative of, of your work and that of the Pacific Justice Institute, because otherwise a a lot of these pastors, I mean, like in this case here, where is this man going to get the kind of money necessary to go out and hire a defense lawyer to to defend what what should be, uh, you know, respected by the government? And that is, hey, this guy's got some some First Amendment rights here. He's got uh, he's got some constitutional rights that that, that ought to trump any of the craziness of the agenda going on within the DA's office. But uh, you know, apparently not. At least not from their perspective. Right. And, and, you know, Craig, we do all our work without charge. So anyone out there who uh, needs assistance, we pick up the tab. We don't charge. We, we take it all the way to the Supreme Court without charge. And uh, we're very, very grateful to those out there who are a part of our team. And by the way, just before I forget, um, we have this wonderful matching gift program up through to the end of January, actually. And it's a dollar-for-dollar matching up to uh, $100,000 in cumulative uh, donations. So... It's a really great opportunity for people who really have a heart for our work, who want to join the team and be a part of the team. Um, we greatly appreciate that, however they feel called uh, and led to, to do. Sure. Do a little uh, little end-of-year uh, end uh, giving, and uh, certainly you can get more information about that online at pacificjustice.org. That's Pacific justice.org. We will continue to follow this story, and our hats off to uh, Brad Dacus, constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, for uh, that update. All right, here at 6 o'clock, let's get you updated on some traffic. And we'll do that ahead of news, but right now, the latest on your Tuesday ride to wherever from the KFAX Traffic Center.